beloved congregation, the Lord Jesus Christ. As I mentioned before, when we have come to the Psalms, is one of the reasons I really like the Psalms is because it's real. Scripture is real. The Christian faith is real. It deals with all the difficulties of life, both physically and spiritually. It doesn't mask it. It deals with it head on. It paints, as it were, warts and all in the Scripture. It's the reality of life in a fallen world. Even as Solomon wrote in in the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes is a man viewing life as if there were no God. And look at how life is when there is no God. It's vanity, it's vain, it's foolishness, it's chasing after the wind. And so the Psalms bring us back to that reality. And now I know that that's the case in most of your lives. Why is that? Because when you're going through the difficulties, where do you turn? You end up turning to the Psalms to find solace, to find comfort, to find the encouragement that is in the Psalms. So what I want to say is that the Christian life is not a life of hide-go-seek. It's not a life of a masking cover-up. It is a a revealing of reality, of the truth, of who God is and who we are. Notice we are good at covering up. The cover-up began in the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord, they ran from God and put on fig leaves. It's the cover-up, the great cover-up. To cover up so that you can't see me and see who I really am. We do the same thing as believers. We are so afraid of what everybody else thinks about us that we never get busy with the life of living for the glory of God because of what somebody else might say. And if you are one of those that are more concerned about other people than yourself, shame on you. You need to start dealing with the plank that is in your own eye before you start poking around in everybody else's business. Notice in this cover-up, death is a reality in this fallen world. The Scripture tells us, from the beginning, the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And unless Christ comes in our generation... We will all make the grave. And you've all been to funerals. And you have all seen people who look terrible when they are on their deathbed. And then, don't worry, because we have the great cover-up. And we put somebody through embalming and then prepare them for the casket and put them in the casket. And they look better in the casket than they did the last 15 years of their life. Why is that? We want to cover up what happens with regards to sin and death. We want to make a show of these things. See, it really isn't that bad. No, beloved, it is bad. And death is an enemy. All that simply to say, be real. I have a friend in California who often receives the text messages that I send. And he will respond, 
Keep it real, pastor. What he's saying there is that's the reality. That's life. That's it. That hit the nail right on the head. You're exactly right with that. That's what we find in the teaching of Scripture. I don't often find people crying out because they're going through turmoil of life. But that's what you find here in Scripture. I don't often find people saying, you know what, I'm really struggling. Whether it's a physical issue, that brings the spiritual aspect into it as a result of the physical problem. Or you're dealing with a trial, a temptation, a tribulation, and you're struggling. You don't often hear people say anything about it. Why? Because the great cover-up. I want you to think of me better than I really am. And you know that's not the case. I'm a lot worse than many of you think. That's the reality of a fallen world, isn't it? And you're a lot worse than anybody else thinks. Because we all do the cover-up thing, and we ought not. What you see is what you get. How often, or could that even be said in your life? What you see is what you get. Now, there's a lot of pretense. There's a lot of phoniness in the life of the church. How you doing, brother? Oh, great, fine. You know, you find out that his dog got killed, his truck broke down, and his wife left him. But everything's great. It's just a lie. We, we, we don't speak the truth. And I get it. I get, a lot of times, I understand why. Because shame on some of you that can't keep your mouth shut. Who can you trust to tell anything to? Do you know anybody that you could say something to and they would keep their mouth shut? You see, that has really hindered the life of the church, isn't it? Because we need to cry out. We need to tell people. We need companionship. And yet, who do you trust? Everything seems to come out no matter what you say. My daughter used to work at a grocery store when we lived in South Dakota, and I used to tell her when she'd go off to work, now remember, your words are like peanut butter. What is said is spread. So be careful of what you say, because people will run with it. For good or for ill, they'll repeat it. Things that ought not to be repeated, just constantly repeating. Really? Is it true? Is it edifying? Is it encouraging? Is it upbuilding? Why do you have to repeat that? And yet we do it. So the church is like a wheel that's stuck. It's a cog. There's something going on in the mechanism of the church. And what is it? We put on phoniness because we don't want people to think that we're struggling. Because we certainly can't tell them. Because if we do, then everybody will know. And I don't want everybody knowing my business. So you have on the one side, you got people that don't say anything when they're going through trouble and they struggle alone in these, these problems. And then on the other hand, you got people who can't keep their mouth shut. So we can't companionship, we can't have companions in the life of the church because you don't trust anybody and the church is stuck. We behave just like the world. But you don't find this in the reality of the Psalms, do you? psalmist here in Psalm 130, <clears throat> and the theme basically is that God forgives and that we are, as the people of God, to keep trusting the Lord. You know, Spurgeon said one time, trusting the Lord in the light is easy. It's trusting Him in the dark where true faith is seen. 
It's when you go through things that you don't understand and you can't see around the corner. That's true faith. To hold on to the Lord in difficult time when the storm is raging and you can't see any way out. That's true faith. True faith survives that type of a tempest. False faith will always be seen to be what it is. False faith when tribulation and trials come. So, the psalmist here, we have no real background on this psalm. Don't know who the author was, the humanly speaking. We know ultimately God is the author of all scripture. So it's unimportant for me who specifically is the human writer, the one who penned the words. God is the one who is the author of all of scripture. The difference and maybe the help in just simply understanding whether it's David, I've heard Hezekiah, maybe Solomon, I don't know. It's not revealed. Is that you can think about their life and realize, yeah, this is probably the scenario, probably the circumstances surrounding this psalm. Sometimes that's helpful. But as I said, in the providence of God, he has not revealed that to us. And so let's not speculate. Let's not try to say, well, I think and I think because it's a fool's errand. It gets you nowhere. If God hasn't revealed it, guess what? You will never know until he reveals it. And that may be in the kingdom, and it may not. But in understanding this, that given no background, it it really helps, I think, and lends to the principal application in our lives. Because we've all been here. Now, when it speaks about out of the depths, the depths speak about the deep. The deep has reference in Psalm 62 to water, to flooding, to something overflowing you so that you are in a position, in a condition where there is no exceemable escape. In other words, when you're in the depths, how you view it is, I'm going to die. That's the circumstance. That's what the psalmist is going through or had gone through. But he's crying out to the Lord. It reminds me when Jesus cries out from the cross and he is surrounded by the dogs, the lions, as the scripture says, wanting to devour him. And he must drink the dregs to the bitter end. It reminds me of Jonah when he doesn't see any way that he's going to escape the belly of the fish. And all he can see is impending death. Or Jeremiah in the pit. And he's cast into the pit and he sees no way out as he's buried in the pit. So it is with the psalmist. He's crying out from the depths of, and it's using a metaphor, from the depths he's cried out for you, from the deeps, something that is bringing great turmoil to the man's soul. And what does he do? He cries out to the Lord. Beloved, is that our first response when we go through the deep, the troubles? You know, we speak that way metaphorically. So say something like this, I'm up to my eyeballs in this. You know what that means. I'm I'm drowning in this. It's overwhelming me. It's like the flood has come over me. It's washing me away. This This is really, I'm struggling with this. This is a psalmist. Have you been there? What did you do when you were 
in the deep. What did you do when you were going through the turmoil? Now, I, this is not this is not the uh, something of tribulation that we're speaking of here as a result of the providence of God bringing some kind of pain and suffering and sorrow upon this individual. This is as a result of sin. He says so. He talks about his iniquities. It's because of sin he finds himself in this predicament. Now, you think about this. What happened to David when he sinned with Bathsheba? It was a year in that predicament where the flood was overwhelming him. And he was crying out from the deep to the Lord. And the Lord seemingly was silent towards David for that year. But David really wasn't crying out in repentance. And this is a penitential psalm. David was struggling and wanting to hide his sin. He wanted to cover up as well. You think about that as the great cover up is what we do. You remember that he, was, he, he laid with Bathsheba. She became pregnant. So he got Uriah, got him drunk and sent him to be with his wife. Because the man wouldn't go and stay with his wife. He was too noble for that. He slept with the slaves. The servants. So David said, I'll get him drunk. And I'll persuade him in that way. But he was a noble man and he still wouldn't do it. So David in the great cover up, what does he do? He says, I know what I'll do. I'll send him out into the heat of the battle. And then when the battle is most fierce, then I'll tell Joab, withdraw the troops and so that uh, Uriah is slain on the battlefield. And then David easily said, who knows where the arrow of the Lord flies? David was in the deeps. The Lord's hand was heavy upon him. So, this happens to us, beloved. Sometimes it happens as a result of sin. Sometimes for reasons we don't know. That's the life of Job. Job did not understand why he was going through the turmoil of life, but that he was going through it. He cried out from the deeps to the Lord. Have you been there? I've been there. It's ugly. It's the worst thing I've ever gone through. I would hate to ever go through that again. And I may have to go through that again, but I'd hate it. It's, It's... and I don't mean this, and I'm not making light of it. As I said this before, <clears throat> I'd rather have two broken legs than go through the, the deep. But you notice that if you have broken legs, and you have broken bones, and you become immobile, you go through the deep, don't you? Because we're body and soul. What happens to us physically afflicts us spiritually as well. You can't compartmentalize. Even though you may have a broken arm, you become discouraged, maybe even depressed, because you can't do the things that you once did. But we cry to the Lord. And we persevere crying to the Lord. We keep on crying to the Lord. We don't stop crying to the Lord, because the Lord hears the prayers of His people, beloved. The Lord ultimately redeems His people. In other words, He carries us through the trouble. Oftentimes, it's not out of the trouble, it's through the trouble. Why? Because there is a conformity that goes on. That we become more and more like the character of Christ 
through the tribulations, Romans 5. God often doesn't deliver us out of the trouble, but through the troubles, so that we become more and more like Jesus on the other end of the trial, the trouble. But we cry to the Lord. Friends are important. Speaking to friends are important. Companionship is important. But ultimately, our friends cannot deliver us from the deep. It's the Lord and the Lord alone. So we must go to the right source, beloved. It's the Lord in whom holds our breath in His hands. It's in Him we live and move and have our being. It is Him who has providentially ordained the deep that we go through at particular times of our life. It is ultimately the Lord who brings us out of the deep as well. So the psalmist gives a great example for us. A great principle. We are to be the people that cry out to the Lord. Because notice verse 2, the Lord heard my voice. So I said, he went through the deeps, and now the Lord has heard his cry. And in hearing his cry, it has reference to delivered me from all my trial and trouble and problems. The Lord always hears the prayers of his people. When did you give up on praying for certain people? At what point did you stop praying for certain individuals? Why did you stop praying? Did they die? Did the Lord save them? Why would you stop praying for individuals? I'll tell you why we stop praying. Because we really, really want our will to be done. And when it's not, we get angry with God. Let's be real, beloved. You know that's the case. We want our will to be done. Now, as believers, we pray and we want God's will to be done. But we also want our will to be done. And we want God's will to be our will. And again, we need to repent of that, don't we? And we become angry because we didn't get our way, just like our kids. And we stop praying. And we say things, well, the Lord's not doing anything. He's not hearing my prayers. It's not according to our timetable. We are called to be steadfast in our life of prayer. And I know it can be difficult. Look, let's just say this. There is nothing in the Christian life that isn't difficult. It's hard living as a believer in a fallen world. A world that hates us, hates God, is contrary to all the things of God. It's a struggle, beloved. That's why the metaphors of Scripture, the athlete, the farmer, the soldier, we keep on fighting. You know, you plant and you plant in hope, in hope that the Lord will bring the rain. If you didn't have pivots here in Nebraska, guess what? There's a drought coming. I've seen that drought. I've seen it in South Dakota. The dirty 30s, they called it where there was no rain and everything just basically turned to sand. That's how we got a lot of the Reformed churches out in California because some of the families sent their kids out there and they began had churches established out there because there was nothing here in the Midwest. Drought. I think in 2010 or 11, there was a drought in South Dakota. 
Well, the farmers were cutting silage in June because there was no rain and the crops didn't grow. So the farmer, he plants and he plants in hope that God will bring the rain. That's hard. You don't know if it's going to happen. Am I going to see crops this year? I don't know. You persevere, don't you? And year after year, you keep on persevering and planting and hoping and waiting. And then through the duration of that, it's not easy, is it? The wind comes up. Straight line wind. You walk out and see all your corn flat like the ground. The hail comes and shreds it like a paper shredder. I've seen that too. The rain, it just tears it all up. And it's done. And all the work that you put into it. It's heart-wrenching. It's difficult. That's the metaphor of the Christian life. A farmer. An athlete. Think about running and preparing to run. And how many hours that you need to run to prepare to run a simple race. Day after day. Dieting. Exercising. Preparing yourself to run. This is the Christian life. It doesn't just happen. We are to be diligent. We are to be circumspect in our Christian life. That's why, beloved, you are called to study the Word of God. To be filled with the Word of God. To be involved in the life of the church. To edify, to build up, to pray for one another. And keep on persevering as you run that race, looking to the prize. And that's Jesus. He's the author. He's the finisher. He is the one who spurs us on to keep running the race set before Him. He's the one who energizes us as well. And He does that by His Spirit. God hears the voice of His people. The psalmist says, notice, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. Now, this, let me explain this again. The ears of the Lord. God is Spirit. He doesn't have a body as man has a body. So this is what we call anthropomorphic teaching. And what does that mean? Well, anthropos is where you get man. And morphic comes from morphe, which means form. And so it's the scriptures teaching in a certain method of a man for our understanding. Because I know what it means to have ears. I heard the thunder last night. I can hear the wind. I can hear the baby crying. I I can hear. You understand what that means. God is attentive to our cries as well. Calvin would call this the mode of accommodation. God accommodates to us in speaking in this means. So his ears are attentive to our cries. Remember the children of Israel cried unto the Lord? And the Lord heard their cry. And the Lord was attentive to their cry. We cry. Do you cry? I I hope you dads are not ones that say to your boys, don't cry, only girls cry. If you do that, then you go back and you tell your son, you lied. Because we cry as human beings. I've cried more in the last few years than I have in the last 30 years. Jesus cried. Men cry. And fools cover it up and say, no, we don't cry. Yeah, you do. 
you're lying. Your wife has seen you cry too. And we think it's a shame that we do. Really? We hurt, beloved. That's a response to the hurt. Whether it's physical or whether it's spiritual. We respond to hurt. And that's the mechanism that God has given. Grieving. We've cried at funerals. Women have cried at weddings. Men have cried at weddings. I cried at my daughter's wedding. We cry. Do you cry? Do you cry out to the Lord? Sure you do. God is attentive to your cry. In other words, God understands your brokenheartedness. He knows your brokenheartedness. He hears your brokenheartedness. He is the one who's attentive. You know what it means to be attentive, don't you? You're sitting in a classroom and you're seeing the, the kids, the students that are there. And you know when they're attentive. It's like we would say they were on the edge of their seat. And then the others that are not attentive, they're, they look like a drunk man. They're sleeping. They're yawning. They're dozing off. You can see their head falling. You're waiting for it to hit the table. They're not attentive. You ask them a question. Oh, I didn't hear you. You can't when you're snoring. God is attentive. He hears. He's paying attention to us as His children. Isn't that comforting to you? It's comforting to me. It's comforting to me to know that when I cry, God especially attends His people. He is the one who comforts His people. And He comforts us with a comfort that enables us to then comfort others who are going through the same troubles that we're going through. The psalmist says, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? To mark iniquities. If the Lord marked iniquities. In other words, if He kept the iniquities right there constantly in front of us. Because that's what it means to mark is the Hebrew term shamar, which means to guard or to keep. So the idea is to keep that right in front of your face. What does God do? He casts our sins as far as the east is from the west. You see, this is the joy that the psalmist is finding. That the Lord doesn't keep putting it in my face. He forgives me. He cleanses me. He doesn't bring them up against me any longer. He's not a man. God forgives and He no longer brings it up. He's not a man that He digs up the bones and wants to beat you over the head with it again. God forgives us and He casts it as far as the east is from the west. And He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And beloved, you can know that. When you confess, He forgives. And therefore, don't keep on confessing the sins that God has forgiven you of. You haven't committed the sin again, but you go and you keep on asking Him, Lord, please forgive me for what I did two weeks ago. I haven't done it anymore, but please forgive me for that. God has forgiven you. He's heard your cry, and it's all for the sake of His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, let me say this uh, in verse 2. God hears our cries and is attentive to our prayers because He was not attentive to the cry of His Son on the cross. God hears and answers our prayers because Christ went unheard on the cross. The Father turned away from the Son And he was condemned in our place. And he cried out for the Father. 
And the wrath of God came upon him so that the Father hears the prayers of the people of God. Christ has merited that for us. That is so comforting to know. You kids know when your parents don't pay attention to you. You kids know when nobody listens to me, we say. God hears. God always hears. And when we come and we cast our burdens upon the Lord, He gives us an inward peace. Have you experienced that? The peace that surpasses all understanding? That guards your heart and your mind in the turmoil and you have a tranquility, a peace in your life because you've gone to the Lord and He has worked this comfort and calm in your heart. We, we do ourselves such a displeasure and we do a disservice to ourselves by not coming to the Lord in prayer. Giving up in prayer, not casting all things upon Him. God forgives. There is forgiveness with you. God doesn't hold the sin against us any longer. It's been dealt with once for all time in Jesus Christ. We are people that want to say, that's the first time you did that. And then they do it again, and what do we do? That's the second time that you did that. You see, we are keepers of wrongs. They've wronged me. He's wronged me. She's wronged me. And we keep a record of that. God keeps no record once it's been expunged by Christ. Christ has dealt with our sins once for all time. That is a great joy. We are to forgive like that. We are to forgive even as God in Christ has forgiven us. Beloved, when you forgive somebody, you're casting it away from them. The, the, the Greek term of theomy means to send it away. You've sent it away. That's the imagery that goes back to Leviticus 16, where the scapegoat is sent out in the wilderness. Why? It doesn't return. So you don't bring it up again. It's not saying that you forget it. You can't will to forget. But you can will not to bring it up again. To keep your mouth shut. Take it to the Lord in your private prayer. Lord, help me not to bring it up again. Help me not to drag it in front of them again. Because that I might be like you, O Lord. God has forgiveness. God forgives. God forgives now. When we come to Christ, the Holy Spirit regenerates the soul and we are united to Jesus Christ by true faith. God forgives all of our sins in the moment. Not waiting for forgiveness. Now what we do in a relational sense is we come to the Lord confessing and keeping short accounts. Uh, just like the fellowship that we have with one another. We sin against one another. We confess. We forgive. That, that's the life of the Christian church. <clears throat> God forgives and He forgives now. And in the forgiveness that God provides is comprehensive. It includes all sin, beloved. When you came to Christ, when the Spirit of God had done His work within your soul and united you to Christ, all of your sins are forgiven. There's not 99% of it where you've got to do something. Christ has cleansed you from all your sin. And so you bear them no more. 
It's a hymn writer said, uh, not in part, but the whole. I bear them no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. It's been nailed to the cross. Notice the response of the psalmist in knowing that all of his sins have been forgiven. That, in order that, this is a purpose clause. For this purpose, God forgives his people so that he might be feared. What does that mean? God forgives me, reconciles me, establishes a righteousness um, that he imputes to me. He causes a covenant of salt, a covenant of peace. We now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And am I going to be in fear and trembling? Is that what he mean? So I'm going to go cower and hide from the Lord. That's not what it means here in fearing the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a loving, faithful, diligent, reverential obedience to the God who has redeemed you. You want to worship Him. You want to serve Him. This is a response of thanksgiving, beloved, is to worship and honor Him. That's why I say, you know, it's heart-telling how we respond to the goodness of the Lord, the grace of God. If we worship Him, if we don't worship Him. If we come to Him in prayer, if we come to Him in worship, all of that is heart-telling. It's heart-revealing of what's truly going on in our life. Are we faithful? Are we diligent? Are we thankful to Him? It's going to be seen in how we approach Him in worship. So, God is to be feared in obedience, in love, in faithfulness, in compassion, in service to Him and to one another. This is what the psalmist says. I cried to the Lord and He heard. Many don't hear. God always hears the cries of His people and He forgives. Amen. Shall we pray?